we practice what we call theological triage. You know, we, we don't try to make a big deal out of things that aren't a big deal. We try to focus on the essentials and the things that are most important first. And then as we work our way out from there, we allow freedom in the non-essential things. So that's why it's, it's a pretty concise statement. But All right, so we've got, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four. Four articles left, um, and then we'll be done. And then, like I said, I'll recap a little bit today. I think I'll have plenty of time and then allow time for questions. So uh, I'm going to work through these, I think, pretty quickly. Well, we're going to start with the Christian and social order. So this is Article 15, the Christian and social order. And this is just really a statement about how we relate to the society that we live in. And so you'll, you'll, you'll hear that as I read through it. So I'm going to read through it, and as we've done before, I'll read through each article, then I'll circle back and point out some things that I think are important. So it says this, Article 15, the Christian and social order. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism every form of greed, selfishness and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexuality, and pornography. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. All right, so that was the first one. And there's a whole ton of important information in there. I'm going to point out a few things Uh, here that I think are important. First of all, that we're told here essentially, and I just wrote in my notes, thy will be done in our lives and in society. I don't know if you caught that initially, but this is really a statement about that statement that Jesus tells us to pray, that we want to pray for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that first sentence of that article, Article 15, says that all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives and in human society. And again, the best way to understand that is just to remember that we're told to pray and live in a, in a way where, we, where our attitude is we want God's will to be done in our lives and we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that's just the first statement. And then everything else flows out of that. And secondly, that Christians or Christian influence in society should lead to the gospel or it's ultimately unhelpful. I don't know if you caught that as well as we we're reading through there that the second statement, you know, the first statement is really the first sentence says that we're responsible, we're under obligation to, to 
be involved in society in a way in which God's will becomes manifest. The will of Christ becomes manifest in our own lives and in the people's lives around us. And in the second statement, or the second sentence was that the means and methods used for the improvement of society and establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they're rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. Do you get what's being said there? Like if we, for instance, um, we talked, was it last week, about education? Was that last week? Okay, so, so if we go to um, South Sudan or Chicago and we start a school, and the, the reason that we start the school is because we, we believe education is important, we believe that it's part of our Christian heritage, all of those things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, We've helped some people, but we haven't, at the end of the day, communicated the gospel to those people. In some form or another, if we haven't been trying to get to that point, then what we've done, ultimately, it's not that it's not helpful, but I don't know if you noticed that in the statement it said, it's permanently helpful, only when it's rooted in the regeneration of the individual. So, ultimately, we can help people in this life in a lot of ways, but whatever we do in this life, will be temporal. It'll only last in this life unless we get to the gospel. And so everything that we do, everything that we, all means and methods we use to engage our society, ultimately ought to be driving us towards a a place where we're sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want people to meet Jesus. So when we're talking about influence in society, we're not just talking about working for the common good. We're talking about working for the good of our culture for the sake of communicating the gospel, so that people can be permanently and eternally transformed and helped. So that's an important, important thing for us to, to grasp when we talk about how we engage with the society around us. Then, and these are just in, uh, I'll put these in bullet points in my notes. There are a few important social issues that are addressed in passing in this. They're not elaborated on. We don't have long discussion about them, but I do want you to notice that there are several important uh, topics that were mentioned that are sort of in the front of all of our consciousness culturally right now. For instance, it says that in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism. That was the first thing on the list, not because it's more important than any other, but, but it's there first on the list that we have a responsibility as Christians to oppose racism. We have this huge discussion about race going on in our culture now. In fact, I would say, I would, I, I think that in my lifetime, the topic of race has never been a more volatile subject than it has been right now. So it seems like we are regressing in some sense in our, uh, in the way that we have the conversation about race. But, but our statement does say that, that Christians are supposed to be opposed to racism. There's a whole bunch, I'm not going to read everything here, but, but it does specifically say that we are opposed to all forms of sexual immorality, including homosexuality. There's another uh, uh, subject that right now is at the forefront of the consciousness of our culture. Also, it, it mentions there the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. So there's two statements in one there. Number one, that Christians have, have a responsibility to contend for the sanctity of life from conception So, and I'll touch on this again in a few minutes in another part of our statement of faith, but obviously what's being said there is that 
we believe that life begins at conception. And so we're contending for human life and naturally opposed then to abortion. And then it, it mentions to natural death. And there's another discussion, even in Maryland. Uh, I don't know if you pay attention to the legislature, but in Maryland this is an ongoing discussion right now about uh, physician-assisted suicide and things like that. And so um, in our statement of faith, we draw a line saying that, that we believe that we're responsible to contend for human life from conception to natural death. And those are all important things that they may be small statements, they may just be passing statements, but they are statements. It's not ambiguous. Like we do take a stand on these things. They're, they are there. We don't have pages written about each subject, but they're clearly there. And they're there for us to, to be able to know that where we stand. And then fourth, that Christians uh, should be willing to engage culture and not become isolated. And I'll read this sentence to you again, where it says at the, towards the end of this article, it says, in order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always, excuse me, being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and His truth. So the idea there is that as Christians, we need to engage the culture around us. We need to be willing to work with men of goodwill in any good cause. And then, then of course, there we have the qualifier that we need to be able to do it as long as it doesn't uh, compromise our loyalty to Christ and to the truth of God's Word. But we do want to engage the culture around us. And I think this is really important because I think that the, the more secular our culture becomes, the more likely it is that Christians will withdraw from the culture rather than engage the culture. And we will tend to isolate ourselves rather than engage the culture in a way where we believe we've been insulated by the gospel. So just remember those, if you can remember those two words, those are really important to remember the way that a Christian engages with culture. We're, we don't isolate, we're insulated. So the gospel, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and all that he means to us and his words and his teachings and the Holy Spirit as our helper helps us to engage with culture without fear that will somehow be contaminated by it. And you may ask the question, and we can get to that later, about can we go too far? I think the obvious answer is yes. And it mentions there, if it compromises our loyalty to Christ, then we don't do it. But we should engage. We don't isolate. There's nowhere in the New Testament ever where the church becomes a subculture of the culture around it and becomes isolated. Right? 1 Corinthians 5, Paul dealing with an issue of discipline. It says, don't associate yourself with sexually immoral people. And he's quick to say, but I certainly do not mean sexually immoral people who are outside of the church, because then you would have to remove yourself from the world. So the idea is that we stay engaged. So the Christian has a responsibility not just to live quietly and, and peacefully and sort of do your thing until Jesus returns or you die, we believe that the Christian has a responsibility. We're under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ known in our lives and in the society around us. Peace and war, Article 16. Um, this one we'll do quick. This one's easy. It's the duty of Christians to seek peace with all men on principles of righteousness in accordance with the spirit and teachings of Christ 
They should do all in their power to put an end to war. The true remedy for the war spirit is the gospel of our Lord. The supreme need of the world is the acceptance of his teachings in all the affairs of men and nations and the practical application of his law of love. Christian people throughout the world should pray for the reign of the Prince of Peace. It's a short statement. Um, Just two things I'll mention. Uh, One thing that you'd have to work your way through the scripture references under this article to get to that's not stated explicitly in the statement is that we are not pacifists. Um, Christians, now some Christians are pacifists, and um, some Anabaptists are pacifists. All Anabaptists are pacifists, actually, like Amish and Mennonites and those, those folks. Um, but we're not pacifists. We do believe in just war. We believe also in... Um, if you were to read the scripture references from Romans chapter 13, 1 through 7 is listed here. And that scripture reference is a reference instructing us as citizens of the government that we're under to submit to and honor the government that has authority over us. So in that sense, if our country goes to war, we have a responsibility as citizens of this country to support uh, a just war. Now, are there... Unjust wars and unjust leaders and all, yes, absolutely there are. And again, everything's not so black and white in application. But the idea is that we are not pacifists, but we do want to pursue peace. We don't believe in the end that war ultimately, the killing one human being of another uh, for the sake of, of all the things that wars are fought over, is something that's, that, that is uh, contingent with the gospel. We want, we want to pursue peace. Christ was a, um, is called the Prince of Peace. And so we, all Christians should pursue peace, but I want to make clear that this is not a statement that we're pacifists and that we don't believe in, in conflict. Okay, religious liberty. Uh, this is Article 17, religious liberty. God, does anybody have questions about that last one, by the way? I think it's pretty... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. That's don't ask questions like that. Yeah, next question. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be reasons for yes and reasons for no. Do I do I believe that if if my freedom and my country and the sovereignty of our country is threatened, that I can and and should be part of protecting that freedom and sovereignty? Yes. So in that sense, I would say then uh, I support the things that we do, not everything that we do. But if the interest is protecting our country and our sovereignty, my children, your children, your grandchildren, our way of life, then yes. Okay. Uh, Religious liberty. God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word and not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government being ordained by God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal, civil, I'm sorry, civil government being ordained by God, it is the Christian duty of or the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. 
The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone from the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. Okay, that's a lot. All right, number one, church and state should be separate. We all agree on that. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that, that's clear in this statement. It's, it's in our Constitution. We believe in the separation of the church and state. And the second thing is closely linked to that, where our statement says that no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. All that means is that, that no, there's no state church. We don't believe that there should be a state church. So, um, like the um, Church of England, right? So, you know, the Church of England. Are other churches, do other churches practice? Sure. So, I mean, you can have a state church and then other churches still in the, allowed to practice in the state. But we're saying that there should be no preferred uh, state church. There should be no overlap in the two in that way. Uh, third... That Christians, and here's an interesting statement here, but this is absolutely scriptural. This is from Romans chapter 13. I already referenced it once. But it says that uh, civil government being ordained by God is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. So Christians are to submit to the government in all things not contrary to the will of God. Uh, That's... Difficult, and I hear a lot of talk in Christian circles a lot of times uh, that I think is in direct conflict with what God's Word says on this issue. Like, do we love everything that our government does? No. Uh, Larry, is the tax code always fair and great? No. Should we pay our taxes? Yes. Because we're told in the Scriptures, particularly... In Romans chapter 13, particularly, pay your taxes. If you're being taxed, pay your taxes. You're to submit to the government. Jesus talked about that. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So, so in that sense, do we submit to our government? Yes. Do you submit to it cheerfully? Maybe not. But you do submit. Now, the other, the other side of that coin is... Do we submit on issues like abortion or same-sex marriage? If I'm forced legally, if my government tells me, if you don't perform a same-sex marriage, you're going to be fined or convicted or put in jail or or something like that. I I think that's coming. I think that'll be here in 10 years. I think that's coming. So do I submit to that? No. Why? Because this is contrary... This thing now is contrary to the revealed will of God. So there are things that we do submit to, even if we don't like them. So the measure of what we submit to isn't what I like, right? And this is where I think we cross the line. A lot of times as Christians, we look at what the government's doing. We don't like what the government's doing. We don't like what the president's doing, whatever. And we decide, well, I'm not submitting to them that Government has no authority over me. Christ is my authority. I'm living my life in a way that pleases Him. Well, you can't please Christ by sinning. 
And if the Bible says that we have a responsibility in Romans 13 to submit to the authorities around us because they've been allowed to rise to that position by God, then we can't please Christ by sinning. But we do know that we also ultimately, our ultimate authority is Christ. So if there's a conflict in the revealed will of Christ and what our government is imposing upon us, we always choose Christ. Always. So just remember that the measure is not what we like and what we don't like. It's what is revealed in God's Word. So uh, fourth, um, we do not and cannot rely on the government to do the things that the church has been commissioned to do. So Christ commissioned the church to share the gospel, to spread the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. That's our commission. And we believe that in the sense that, that the changing or the shifting of culture happens when individuals within the culture are transformed by the gospel. If enough people are reached by the gospel, enough people become followers of Christ, then the culture begins to shift. We do not, however, believe that we should ask the government to do those things for us or to legislate those things for us or to, or to do the work that we've been given to do. And here's another place where I feel like the church historically, particularly over the past 30 years, has, has started to want to ask the government to do things that the church was meant to do. And that hasn't really worked out well for us either, by the way. It just hasn't worked. Um, you remember the moral majority? Remember Jerry Falwell's legacy of it, the Christian influence in the political sphere? How'd that work out for us? I mean, honestly, where are we at on all the issues that they began fighting back then? Like, issue, I remember seeing Jerry Falwell in person address the issue of uh, homosexuality and its acceptance in our culture. And he, I remember him lamenting the idea that there would ever be a day when our culture would accept uh, same-sex marriage. Well, how'd that work out for us? You know, I mean, it just it didn't work. It didn't, the, the, asking the government, legislating morality, all those things, it just didn't work for us. We're meant to spread the gospel. We're meant to make disciples. That's the church's role, not the government's role. So we believe that we, we do not or, and cannot rely on the government to spread the gospel. Fifth, we believe in religious liberty for all men. This is important. This is why the, the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, the Southern Baptist Convention, got into some trouble publicly for going to bat on behalf of some Muslim groups who wanted to um, build mosques in Washington, D.C. area. I don't know if you all ever heard about that. Or, um, and some people have accused Russell Moore and the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, which that would include me, as I'm a trustee on that commission, of being Muslim-loving, American-hating uh, people who don't care about Christianity ultimately, a bunch of liberals, all of that, blah, 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 blah. Why is it that we would say you can't stop and you shouldn't stop a mosque from being built in Silver Spring? Why, is, why should a Christian speak up? Yeah, because the next step is you can't build a church. I mean, if you're going to have religious liberty, it's got to be liberty for all. 
It can't be liberty for us and nobody else because that's not even liberty. That's not freedom. If we're free and everybody else isn't, then we're not free. If they're free and we're not, then we're not free. So we all are free or none of us are free. And that's one of the reasons why we, we do in some times, in some places, partner with strange allies to make the case that religious liberty is important and it rises to a place where we can, without violating our conscience, remember that's the measure, without violating our conscience, we can then partner with certain people to make stands on certain things because the stakes are high. The moment we say no here to somebody and we can, behind closed doors, say, wow, that's a relief. Well, we're just one step away from them saying no to us. And so we, we, we believe in religious liberty for all men, unhindered access to God on, part, on the part of all men. So that's religious liberty. All right. The last article in our statement of faith, Article 18, on the family. And this one is a, a mouthful, and I, I mentioned that we would come back to some of the issues we brought up already. But here we go. All right, the family. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. Now just stop right there for a minute and just let that sink in. Because we've had a lot of small discussions today about things that ultimately... The reason why we believe that they are a big deal is because of that statement. That God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. Marriage is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It is God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and His church, and to provide for the man and woman in marriage the framework for intimate companionship, excuse me, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards, and the means for procreation of the human race. The the husband and wife are of equal worth before God, since both are created in God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to His people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, is her as is her husband and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Children, from the moment of conception, are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. Parents are to demonstrate to their children God's pattern for marriage. Parents are to teach their children spiritual and moral values and to lead them through consistent lifestyle example and loving discipline to make choices based on biblical truth, children are to honor and obey their parents. All right. So this is our last one, and it's a biggie. Um, so that first statement that the family is the foundational institution of human society. So that, that's important because we see throughout the Old Testament, for example... Um, that God's plan, his, his first 
and most important plan for how the law of God and the things of God are to be communicated and taught throughout the whole world is what? Parents teaching children. Not the priesthood teaching the next generation, not the, uh, the, the generation going to the temple and getting dropped off there, you know, and parents coming back and picking them up. I mean, that's halfway a joke. But you get the idea is that the, the responsibility for how people would know God and how people would know who He is and what He requires, that responsibility was put squarely in the lap of the parents and in the home. That's where it happened first. And if you short-circuit the home, then you short-circuit God's plan for how His, his person, His plans, uh, the redemption of, of His creation, you short-circuit how it is then that, God's, uh, or that, that God meant for that to happen. Now, when you say all that at the very beginning, then you start to understand why when we're having discussions about marriage and same-sex marriage, and all of these issues about redefining marriage and what a family is and what a modern family is, all these things, now maybe it becomes clearer why we say this is a really big deal. This isn't like any other subject that we deal with because we believe that the foundational institution on the planet is the family. And how do we define the family? One man, one woman in covenant relationship until death and their children. Now, if that's the definition of the family, then we start having a problem when we start dealing particularly with these other issues that we've brought up. Secondly, that God or that, um, that the marriage isn't just structurally ordained by God, but it's purposefully ordained by God to demonstrate something to us, right? So he doesn't just give us an outline of, Here's what a family should look like, man, woman, and children. He also says, here's what a family is for, particularly the the institution of marriage. And we believe that all throughout Scripture, and then Paul explains this specifically for us in Ephesians 5, that the marriage relationship itself was instituted by God for the purpose of demonstrating publicly the relationship of Christ to His church. And so now, now you're, just, you're talking about all sorts of big things that when we dismantle the family, which is what's happening in our culture, when you dismantle the family, you're talking about dismantling the plan for which God has ultimately to communicate the gospel to the world. That's a big deal. I mean, think about it this way. In the, in the book of Genesis, Satan attacks immediately. Right? In the garden. It attacks immediately. And his first attack is on God's word. That's attack number one. He attacks God's word, as God really said. He gets them to doubt, gets them to question. Eventually, they take the next step. They rebel against him. God pronounces a curse against the man, the woman, and Satan. And he announces to Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that there's one coming that will crush your head. You're going to lose. Now, remember that Satan is not omniscient. He's not a, a, a second-tier God. He's just a creature. He only knows what God has revealed to him, the same way we know only what God has revealed to us. So now Satan has the idea that somewhere through this seed, through this woman's seed, through this family, 
I'm going to be defeated. So where is Satan's next attack? He attacks the family. He attacks the family. And then when we talk about other issues all throughout the Scriptures, it's easy to miss, but it's there woven all through the Scriptures that one of the primary points of attack for Satan is the family. He intends to disrupt the family because the family is the place where God has ordained as the one place where the gospel is meant to be passed from the parents to the children and then the the relationship eventually of Christ and his church is to be put on display in the relationship of the husband and the wife and so on and so forth all throughout history and all throughout redemptive history. And so we have an attack on the family. And so when we're having discussions about um, is same-sex marriage worse than a couple who's living together in in terms of are they both sinning? Yes. Um, Is same-sex marriage somehow in greater conflict with the plan of God, the structures of God, the institutions of God? I would say that it is. And that's why that we... I think we have to come to a decision about uh, how we view those things based on the bigger picture. Not is it sin or isn't it sin. Yes, it's sin. It's all sin. But there's a bigger, there's something much bigger at stake. The family and also the reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church is at stake in the family. Fourth, I'm going to finish this up and then uh, we'll have a couple minutes for questions if we need it. Fourth, um, that we do take, we talked about a complementarian view of, of uh, women and men in the church. Here it's spelled out in clear language that we also believe in a complementarian view of men and women in marriage. And all that means is that we believe, again, just to make clear, we believe that men and women are of equal worth and equal dignity. They're both created in the image of God. They're both meant to display the image of God. The husband is not worth more than the wife. The wife is not worth more than the husband. They are absolutely equal in worth and dignity. But we do believe that they play different roles. And let me just read this to you again. It's just a short paragraph, but it says, the husband and wife are of equal worth before God since both are creating God's image. The marriage relationship models the way God relates to his people. Don't don't miss that because in our view or, or in the our complementarian view of, of marriage, what we're saying is we're affirming that there's a bigger picture here. There's something bigger being communicated here. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. So that's the husband's role in the, in the marriage is to put on display the role that Christ has in the church. And then it says, a wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband. Don't miss that. Don't miss that there are qualifiers in here, right? Like, it, we, no person in their right mind, no pastor in their right mind is ever going to say, we are complementarian. Therefore, wives, submit to your husband, even your abusive husband, because he's the head of the home. That's ridiculous. That's not what we're saying here. Wives, submit to your husband. He's the head. Even if he doesn't provide for you and doesn't seem to care about you. That's not what's being said here. 
We believe that there's a mutual relation, there's a relationship between the two where the husband is literally, according to Ephesians 5, literally sacrificing his life for his wife. He's giving his life up for her. And he's treating her in every way, the way that Christ would have treated the church and did treat the church. So the, the husband is living in sacrificial lifestyle, providing for, protecting, loving his family. And then the wife graciously submits herself to the servant leadership of her husband. So this is the relationship of Christ and the church. We submit ourselves to Christ because of who he is for us and what he's done for us. Even as the church willingly submits to the leadership of the headship of Christ, she, in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. So we have, again, a glimpse all the way back to the book of Genesis where Adam is left alone, and we're told early on, the first time in all of Scripture that something is not good, we're told that it's not good for the man to be alone. And so God creates a helper, and she meant to come alongside of him, and together, together they execute God's plan for the family, together. Both playing their appropriate roles, both complementing one another within the structure of their marriage. And then, of course, the last statement, children are a blessing uh, from the Lord from the moment of conception. So there again is another statement about where we believe life begins from the moment of conception and that parents are to d- demonstrate for their children all these things that we've talked about previously.